If you would, take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew, chapter 26. The night of prayer, betrayal, and arrest leading to the Lord's crucifixion. And specifically this morning, as we look into the last night before Passover, we see Jesus agonizing in prayer in Gethsemane. The narrative is shared in three of the four Gospels, and each of them has... Uh, some unique circumstances that are interesting to consider, but the narrative is found in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22, and we'll be looking at those this morning. But first of all, I would like to read through Matthew's account. Matthew's account, in my opinion, is the most simple, uh, straightforward narrative of the three shared with us. Really, actually, it's quite simple. It just gives the details of what was taking place that morning in or that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you would follow along as I begin reading in Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 34. Truly, or verse 36, excuse me. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into the temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. There are several things that are quite simple that we find in this narrative that are also in the other narratives. But first of all, let me just give you five key components of the story. First of all, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him to go to the garden. And he simply tells them to stay awake while he goes over there to pray. Uh, for whatever reason, he wanted the sons of Zebedee with him. It was a place that he went to often. But he tells them to stay there. And, and, and the other account says that he went a little bit further. So as they stopped, he kept going on just a little bit further. Number two, the story tells us that after a period of time, about an hour later, Jesus comes back to the disciples and finds them sleeping. Uh, and he asked Peter specifically if he couldn't stay awake an hour to pray so that they would not fall into temptation. And he reminds them again to stay awake and pray as he himself went away a second time to pray. I don't know about you, but I've heard this story so many times in my life. And I, uh, the angle from which I've often heard the story was that, man, these guys are a bunch of bums. I mean, they couldn't stay awake for an hour while they were with the Lord to pray. I mean, what a bunch of, man, I can't believe you guys can't stay awake. But I think there's a little bit more to the story than that as we continue to read on in some of the other accounts but nonetheless, Jesus comes away after praying for an hour. And by the way, have you ever prayed for an hour? Just as a curiosity question. 
I can remember as God challenged me to pray more back in my college years, and uh, I remember taking one of my freshman courses, it's called The Study of Prayer. And uh, we were uh, encouraged to get alone with God and pray. And I can remember thinking, Lord Jesus, and I started to pray, and I prayed for everything under the sun. And I look up, it's been like seven minutes. I know no greater sleeping aid than praying at night um, after a long day. But praying for an hour is not something that's simple. So Jesus goes away and he prays for about an hour and comes back and finds them sleeping. Number three, after some time, Jesus returned to his disciples a second time and found them sleeping again. And it appears that the disciples just couldn't keep their eyes open. Wow. It's because prayer is, and I believe, hard work. It's tiring. It's laborious. And then Jesus then left a third time to pray. And as he finished praying, he returned to his disciples the third time and asked them if they were still sleeping and resting. Three times he encouraged them to pray. Three times he returns and finds them sleeping. And then number five, he then urges his disciples to get up for his betrayer is drawing near. He knew that this was the last night. And his time to come to the cross was nearing. We see another detail presented in Mark's narrative. So if you would, turn over to Mark chapter 14, just over to the right a few pages. Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 42. We see several other things in this passage, or verse 32, excuse me. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, began to be deeply distressed and troubled. It's amazing to me that how many times I was just kind of perusing after I had my message done, what other people were saying about this phrase, deeply distressed and troubled. There are those who actually believe that Jesus was in sin here because he was worrying. He was not worried. He knew what was going to take place. He was in, about to fulfill his, his father's plan. There was no way that he was in sin. God's word makes that very clear. But he's distressed over what is going to take place. And let me just say that any one of us who were about to face what he was about to face would be deeply distressed and sorrowful. Verse 34, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We've heard that phrase many times, and some of you have that as posters on your refrigerator. You know how bad you want to stay away from it, but you just can't because your flesh is stronger than you think it is. It says, once again he went away, verse 39, and prayed, saying the same thing. And again he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Think that phrase just for a moment. What would you say? This is Jesus Christ in the flesh coming to them. Could you stay awake? Um, 
What would you say? They're speechless. They didn't know how to respond to that. They're guilty. What could they say? But I believe the final account gives us a little bit more detail on that. Verse 41, then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. So according to verse 40, as Jesus drew near his disciples, they were sleeping. They didn't even know how to respond to Jesus' question of not being able to stay awake. But as we look at the final narrative found in Luke, we see even greater detail of Jesus' prayer time in Gethsemane. So if you would, one more time, turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And I'll be reading verses 39 and following. It's amazing here have we, how we have three different narratives from three different, or same narrative found in three different books, and they coincide, and yet one gives a little more detail than what the other one gives, but all gives us a story of what took place that night in Gethsemane. Verse 39 says, He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. It's kind of interesting here that that allows us to know that Jesus made it a practice to go to the Mount, Mount of Olives, and maybe specifically more so to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, verse 40, When he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then, here's an interesting thing that we don't see in the other passages. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. As we look at this final narrative in Luke, we see greater detail of Jesus' time in prayer in Gethsemane. First of all, we see that Jesus prayed often, as I mentioned. But number two, we see that an angel from uh, heaven appeared to him, strengthening him during his time of prayer, and, uh, and especially for the time to come. He knew that this time on earth was drawing to an end. And he knew that he was about to face the cross. And he needed the strength from his heavenly Father. And the angel came down and strengthened him for the task at hand. Number three, we see that Jesus prayed more fervently. Say, so is that a big deal? I think it is. Because as he went away and prayed, he was in anguish. He was in distress. He was in sorrow over everything that was going to take place. And let me just say, he did that for you and for me. And for those who are yet to be born. He gave his life. And so he, Jesus prayed more fervently as sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's amazing how all kinds of commentary want to just diminish that. Just pretend it didn't happen. Pretend that that's not something of uniqueness that was with our Lord Jesus. But we find that it was as he was praying fervently for mankind. And then number four, we see that a mob, including his betrayer Judas Iscariot, coming to take Jesus and fulfill the hour where Jesus would give his life a ransom and sacrifice for mankind. What an incredible night in prayer that he had. And when you gather all three of these narratives, you find that it was a time of intense prayer, 
a time where he encouraged those around him to join him in prayer. Yet they slept. But we find something unique in that third passage that you don't see in the other passages as well about the disciples. As he approached his disciples, it says because they were in sorrow, because of their grief. They were just so exhausted from it. There were a lot of unknowns at this point for the disciples who had followed him, who had been serving with him, who were ministers alongside him. Jesus was going. They didn't understand all the details of what that meant. But now they know that Jesus is literally leaving shortly. And it says that they were exhausted. From what? Just being tired? No. They were exhausted from their grief and from their sorrow. Have you ever met somebody at a time of loss? They've lost someone that they love deeply, and they cried and cried and cried until they were just so exhausted that they just fall asleep. I think this is the scenario here. In my opinion, I could be wrong. But my opinion, according to God's word, is that they were exhausted from their grief. It was overtaking them. And as we look at these three passages of Scripture, we see the Lord's final act before He is arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. What was so important that He spent His final hours doing it? Prayer. Prayer. I wonder how important is prayer to you and I? How important is prayer to you? I'm convinced that the normal Christian life is not spending too much time of prayer. I'm convinced that most of us pray for our meals. We give God a courtesy call in the morning. Maybe a courtesy call at night before we go to bed. But how much time do we truly spend in prayer? Think about it. You and God know that answer. And be honest with you, I don't think I fully understand it. Every time I read scripture about what Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry, he was praying constantly. And you find out what usually followed that time of prayer was incredible ministry opportunities. And so often, and we don't understand this, but so many accounts throughout all the Gospels gives the idea that he was always casting out demons and evil spirits and performing miracles. And it typically followed a time of prayer. I wonder how important is prayer to you and I. But you notice the setting. The Passover meal had been eaten. The upper room discourse had been completed. They sang a song. They sang a hymn and left to make their way to the Mount of Olives. And the cross is now in view. And he takes time to pray. Notice what Jesus was praying for. He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's a lesson for all of us to learn. Are we willing to pray, God, your will be done, not mine? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at kicking open the doors that I want. And then, Lord, thank you for opening this door. Come on, let's, let's be honest. Do we truly pray? And ask God to work. Asking God to go before us. Asking God to go with us. Asking God to come behind us. That His hand of blessing would be upon those things that we do. Because we're walking in the Spirit. 
Saying, God, your will be done, not my own. How often do we pray for things? Say, God, please make this door open. Make this door open, God, please. And God is saying, I'll open it, but I have something better for you. If you just trust me. And Jesus is taking the time to pray to his Father and saying, Lord, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. According to Matthew's account, Jesus prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Regardless, God, I'm going to do your will. According to Mark, Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Know this, however, Jesus was not trying to change a father's mind about the cup of wrath. He's not trying to get out of the task that Jesus had, that, that he was about to partake in. And so is there another way to explain that? I believe there is. Once again, God's word makes it clear that Jesus never sinned. If he was contemplating disobeying his heavenly father, he would not be Jesus. Amen? He is God the Father in flesh as Jesus Christ. Part of the deity, this, the, the trinity of Jesus, of, of, the, of the Godhead. I believe he was not trying to get out of the task that his father sent him to fulfill. Jesus was ascertaining, I believe, the possibility of whether or not there might be another solution to bring salvation to mankind. Or was there any other way for a sin of man to be forgiven? But God had a distinct plan, and he moved forward with it. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7-9, through 9, it says, During his earthly ministry, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, that being God. It says, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And verse 9 says, after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He was the one who went to the cross and fulfilled what his father gave him to do. He was obedient to his father's will. And he knew, even though the cup of wrath was going to be poured out, Lord, is there another way? No, this has to be it. Jesus knew the cup of wrath was a dreaded thing to behold. In Psalm 75, verses 6 through 10, it says, Exaltation does not come from the east, the west, or the desert. For God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine, blended with spices, and he pours from it, and all the wicked of the earth will drink. Draining it to the dregs. As for me, I will tell about him forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. I will cut off all the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. He knew about the cup of wrath that would be poured out. Oftentimes you see in Scripture, in fact, every time you see in Scripture the cup of wrath, it speaks of judgment. Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself up. Stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk the cup of his fury from the Lord's hand. You have drunk the goblet to the dregs, the cup that causes people to stagger. He was very well aware of what was going to take place. In Jeremiah chapter 25, and beginning with verse 15, says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you drink from it. He knew that the cup of wrath was judgment. 
They will drink, stagger, and go out of their minds because of the sword I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me to drink from it. Jerusalem and the other cities of Judah, its kings and its officials, to make them a desolate ruin, an example for scorn and cursing. As it is today, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his officers, his leaders, all his people, and all the mixed peoples, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. This cup of wine of wrath from my hand, it was a cup of judgment. And one more in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships a beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image, or anyone who receives the mark of its name. You see, the cup of wrath was not a wonderful thing to look forward to. And Jesus says, if this cup could pass from me any other way, he knew his full ability to be judgment on mankind. But not only did he pray for the cup to pass, if it were possible... Jesus also prayed immensely that his disciples would not give temptation. You remember last week as we looked at John chapter 17. As we walked through that, said so Jesus prayed for himself. He prayed for his disciples and he prayed for all believers everywhere. But in the beginning of verse 16 of John 17, he began to pray immensely for his disciples. Remember what he prayed for? Unity. Unity. Why? So that they would be one. That they'd be one. And we said you have the idea that years ago there were just a few, few, relatively few registered denominations with our government. And today there are thousands. Just a few years later. Why? Because there's not a unity from the gospel. And if you can keep the disciples unified, a singular purpose, they won't be tempted to go other ways, to do other things. I think there are several things here. As he prayed immensely that the disciples not given to temptation, Luke alone tells us why they could not stay awake. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Their sorrow and grief was heavy and wore on them. It was going to be a new chapter in their lives. They weren't sure of everything that was going to happen and take place. But I believe possibly the temptation to become discouraged. Can you imagine just for a moment the man that you had followed and walked side by side with is now gone? Don't you think that'd be a little bit discouraging that their closest friend is now gone? Or how about to be distracted? Well, Jesus is gone, so let's go ahead and do this now. And to be distracted by something that is of less importance than carrying on the work that Jesus had taught them to do. Or how about this? To be dismayed and be angry and upset over what the crowd was doing to Jesus. But remember that what the crowd was doing was fulfilling Scripture, right? Maybe they didn't understand it, but Scripture is being fulfilled. Or number four, to be disillusioned by what the Lord would be going through in the near future and what would happen to them. Can you imagine just for a moment, if they're going to crucify our Lord and we're His followers, what are they going to do to us next? Maybe they're disillusioned by what would take place. 
But whether it's discouragement or distraction or dismay or disillusionment, whatever it was, he prayed that they would not be tempted, but that they would stay faithful to the task at hand. Let me ask you a question. Don't you think that would be a good prayer for all of us? That we would not be tempted to go away, but to be committed to stay close to the Lord in all these areas? Possibly the temptation to resist what God would have for them to do as the Savior would complete His tasks. Hebrews 12, 4 says, In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus was the one who shed His blood. But what was next for them? Would it be our desire, as it says in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know Him? My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. I don't know about you, but you and I have not experienced that. Not even close. We don't understand what it means to go to a cross. We don't understand what it means to be whipped and bruised and to shed our blood. But because Jesus does, we can have salvation. There's another cup, other than the cup of wrath, that we can partake of. It's the cup of salvation or rejoicing. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 5, it says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing to be able to say? Amen? That he is our cup of blessing. Because of what He has done for us on the cross of Calvary. Because He did go to the cross. Because He did shed His blood. And let me just say this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. Because He went and shed His blood, you and I don't have to. You and I have the opportunity to place our faith and trust in Him and His finished work on the cross. And be partakers of the cup of salvation or the cup of rejoicing. And Psalm 116, verse 13 says, I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That's a wonderful cup to partake of. We see in our text here that Jesus would go on and be arrested. It's an interesting story here if you've never read it. We find out that as soon as he wakes up his disciples the third time, verse 46... We find in verse 47, it says, While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them, and he came near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, temp- temple police, if you will, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. Here Jesus would be arrested, given a mock trial, by the Sanhedrin, by Pilate and Herod, who found nothing wrong with them, who eventually released a criminal who deserved to die. 
but rather put Jesus on the cross. Why? So that the world might be saved through him, his sacrificial death at Calvary. You understand, this is the final night. And he spends it in prayer. For his father, for his disciples, just like he did in John 17. And now for the world, who would be saved through him. As we come into this Easter season again, once again, every year, we have opportunity. And unfortunately, we kind of highlight that time of the year as the resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that should only be highlighted once a year. We highlight it because it brings our attention and our focus back to what Jesus did for us. And it's the most important thing we, any of us could ever consider is to know Jesus Christ. The reason he prayed, the reason he went to the cross is because we had a sin debt that we couldn't pay. And he paid a price he didn't know so that we may know him. You see, salvation is more than just saying a prayer. I believe that anyway. It's not just asking Jesus into your heart. As the phrase has been made famous so many years ago. It's not an escape from hell. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a commitment to follow him in obedience. It's a commitment to sacrifice our lives for his. Not to die for him but to live for him, according to Romans 12. Are we willing to do that? Say so A fringe benefit is that we don't have to fry forever. <laughs> but the truest blessing is that we get to spend eternity with him at his feet and to worship him and to have an intimate relationship with him. And my question in closing today is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? God's word makes it clear. It says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. We say it often. It doesn't matter how good a person you are. You may be the greatest person that walked this earth in your mind. In your mama's mind, you're beautiful. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Do you know him? Have you placed your faith and trust in him? Have you responded to his call to your life? I trust that you have. Let's pray.